are listening to High Value Women, brought to you by the New Feminist Magazine. We are your hosts, Ellie Massiara Fielding. And it's wanted criminal, Adam Sarasty Rawlings. <laughs> How fitting, yay! <laughs> I am very excited, guys, because um, we missed out on doing a Halloween episode, and I've been wanting to do a true crime episode forever, because um, I'm a huge fan of Red Handed. Um so first of all shout out to red-handed second of all yeah we love you guys <laughs> yes so we are diving into some true crime today just before we dive into the family facts and family thoughts though because can't forget those um just a general trigger warning ahead of this episode that we are talking about violence murder some sexual assault child abuse some substance abuse as well probably it's going to be mentioned mentioned at places so listener discretion is advised. Just keep that in mind before you dive into this one. Um, but yeah, we hope you enjoy it. However, if you are a spooky bitch <laughs> and a true a seasoned Her. true crime ex- expert, um, welcome. It's good to have you here. Um, and yeah, enjoy the spooky festivities. Right. Let's do the Femi facts. Yes, let's. Do you want to so, go? So mine is a Femi drag. Yay! <laughs> so anytime Adam drag uh, drags, we need to drink now as well. Added on to the Shakira <laughs> thing. <laughs> oh, actually, I'll give you a quick Shakira update. Drink for that. Yay! Um, so she won three Latin Grammys in Sevilla. She won Interpretación Urbana, Canción del Pop, y Canción del Año. Del Año. So very exciting. It means basically she won best pop song song of the year and like best urban interpretation. I guess is what that means. That's amazing. Um, and she's also reached a deal on the tax stuff, so hopefully that will start to go away now. Please don't bring <laughs> it up again. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> my family drag is... Hello, Matt Rife. We're talking about you. <laughs> and Matt Rife is rife with misogyny, it would seem. Ah, how has that not been said yet? Oh, honestly, my mind. It amazes me sometimes. <laughs> so... In case y'all didn't know, the internet's former boyfriend has been dumped, broken up with, because after women literally gave him a career and got him a Netflix special, which, let's be real, if you're a comedian, a Netflix special is like winning a fucking Oscar. Yeah, really is. And this frat rat decided that he's going to open a special with a cute little joke about domestic violence. Now, Call me a stick in the mud. Call me a bit of a... What's the right word? Wet blanket. <laughs> Domestic violence isn't actually funny, believe it or not. I, I, oh my I know, God, I, like, that is so I know. PC of you. Like, that's ridiculous. Honestly. Such a snowflake. Woke gone wild. <laughs> the real tea, though, is me and Ellie own the same camp about this. We like a bit of dark humour. I mean, we're probably going to have a little bit of dark humor sprinkled across this episode when it's appropriate. But when you make jokes about people that have less privilege than you, less social capital than you, it shows to me that you're a weak comic. Mm. And especially when women have put you in a position that you're in. And then you decide to punch down. It just shows it's like, hmm, not really that good of a comedian, are we then? Because let's be real, he's only got to where he is because he's a decent looking guy and he flirts with his audience. And like, you know what? I would have been clowned too. I didn't really know who he was before all this. I'd, I'd seen maybe one or two videos. 
Yeah, same. And to be honest, even then I was like, oh boy, you are on thin ice. Like, yes. He was like just on the edge of like fringe. I hate that fringe comedy, but he mm. was. And now after this, I'm like, okay, you're done. You're done. Yeah, you're finished. Um, yeah. So if you want to meet me outside, then <laughs> that's all good. But I don't think you have the balls to do that. Because um, you clearly <laughs> don't have the balls to write any decent comedy. So i love an adam drag we need to do little we need to do a drag um a drag series i will give it to him there's something you have to admire which is it takes a certain amount of severe lack of awareness to literally end your career within the first two minutes of your netflix special (laughs) i mean you know what though i have to give it to him it's almost charitable that he let us know from the beginning that he was so shit within the first two minutes it's like okay i'll tune out i don't need to watch the rest of this no, fully. So, and for those you know of what? you who don't know who Matt Reif is, he's just a comedian that was literally like a nobody not that long ago. And then his clips went very viral on TikTok. And he, he's um another case of a very like rapid fame, um, which he's instantly killed. <laughs> so oh, there you go. Did you see how he apologized? I didn't even know he did apologize. Well, he didn't. He said he put on his Instagram story, um, to anyone who's like been offended by one of my jokes, it was a link, and people are like, oh, is it trying to hold you video? It was a link to a company that sells helmets for special <gasps> needs individuals. Yeah, so we can throw ableism in there as well. Okay, I'm I'm pulling a shocked face. I always forget that people can't see me, <laughs> and I'm just <laughs> silent. <laughs> yeah, no, that's 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 awful. Jesus Christ, man! What? It's like. It's one it's like it's one thing to make a joke and it's like, okay, this didn't go over very well, and maybe it's time for me to learn about my privilege a little bit, because let's be real, white men don't understand that they have privilege. Yeah. Because even though they do, the entire world is built for them and the fucking tiny bricks. Um but then you double down and decide to throw ableism into the mix. So this is not like making a a fun curry where you add like an extra spice in there. This oh is your career. Like, I mean, enjoy relevance while it lasts because you're gonna drop off the face of the earth like in a week's time actually by the time this comes out so we're recording this um on the 22nd of november by the time this comes out homeboy will have dropped face of the earth i'm calling it oh yeah oh yeah and i've said this time and time again about different like cancellations like colleen and stuff but like how did he write that and look at it and be like yeah yeah (laughs) and then and then netflix were like yeah like i don't how did it Oh my god! Did you see that? Did you see that she tried to do an apology video for her yeah, apology video? <laughs> Honest to God, is this just a year of terrible apology videos? Of yeah. terrible apologies. Listen, we're. I'm we're, sorry. That's how you do it. We're we're acting like it's terrible, but we are lapping up the drama. Let's look at Oh no! Just to believe. <laughs> Speaking of drama, <laughs> honestly, that's going to be number one on my rap. Yeah, no, funny. Um. Yeah, I was gonna do a really like cute Femi fact right about um these amazing um astronomers. Ooh, but now you've got me in a bit of a pop culture mood, so now I'm like I kind of just want to like quickly talk about I'm a celeb because me and Adam have been <gasps> watching it. Yes, and, like, oh my god, <laughs> it's not a Femi fact. What are our Femi facts anymore? <laughs> just like bitching, like we just have to get all our like bitchiness out so we can like be proper feminists for the rest of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> 
But like, Nella, girl, what are you doing? Uh, I can't the... in your fight for this one. No, like, I was like, Nella's going to carry the show. Like, the, the entirety of the UK was rooting for you, girl. And then what? Like, I don't understand. Like, I, I sympathize with her. I mean, losing a dad isn't easy. Obviously, it's horrible. But like, where, where did but, like, that girl, level of we sensitivity come from? We were from? all rooting for you. We How dare all... you? <laughs> Learn something from this. <laughs> I've never in my life yelled at a girl like this. All right, take a seat, Tyra. <laughs> Honestly, I feel like in like another life, I definitely could have been a Tyra Banks type. Oh yeah, <laughs> you was pulling some well. problematic shit in the early two thousands. Oh, for those of you who missed the episode though last night, go watch it because basically Nella woke up in a mood with Fred, um, and she was like. Oh, she chose violence. She just chose violence and she just she went, I'm going to die on this hill. Like, I don't care how foolish it looks. And she was just like, I'm really pissed off with Fred. I didn't say it at the time because he said that he was old enough to be my dad. And I honestly, I, I was like, okay, let me give her a, the benefit of the doubt. Let's see the clip. They rolled the clip. And literally all the man said was like his age. He was like, I'm old. Like, I'm old enough to be your dad. And she was like, my dad's dead. And I was like... <laughs> Uh, okay, girl. Like that's. I was just sat there watching it. Like, okay, there goes the season. Yeah, yeah, it's so disappointing. And then boo the boohoo tweet. Boohoo, which thumbs down. (gasps) Oh my god, no, for real. I was like, right. I literally text Ellie like before they tweeted that like pink court and getting renewed. Is it? Yeah, Adam tweeted it. Oh my god. Honestly, my mind, my PR mind. I know. And then Jamie Lynn Spears can literally catch these hands. Like every time oh, no, just leave. she's it's like, oh, I want to leave. I'm like, okay, fucking leave then. <laughs> like, we, no, no. Also, leave. I'm like, it's so ironic to me that she chose to be in this situation. She's crying because she chose to be in this situation. Yet she stood by while her sister was in an astronomically worse situation, not of her own volition for 13 years. Well, I'm it like, makes sense hmm. to me, though, because listen, all of a sudden, like a couple years after. She's like having to stop leeching off her sister's money. She needs to go on a show that is notorious for old celebrities who are broke. Like they yeah. go on for the paycheck. Nobody exactly wants to go on that show. Really, they they do it because they need they need the paycheck. Um, yeah, so I it's think people it's people. It's people who are either really on the downs or people who want to desperately be on the ups. Yes, ex- exactly that. Perfectly put. And she, my friend, is on the downs. <laughs> oh, honest to God, and like. If she thinks she's gonna get the British public on her side by striking, girl. No. no. Also, for those of you who don't know, striking is like a Northwest slang for like people crying, but in an annoying oh, way. I adore that. I adore it. I'm gonna circulate it down here. I'm, I'm taking yeah. it on myself. <laughs> so there'll be a little pocket of people in Sorry saying striking. I love it. <laughs> and we'll probably butcher it as well, like we do with everything. Yeah, well, you need to say like striking. Like you need to have a bit of a, a northern striking. <laughs> okay one so that was ellie's attempt at northern accent we've dragged several people so let's talk about someone who did the ultimate drag of murdering people that was an intro um that was one <laughs> <laughs> so uh right We've gone for true crime. We wanted to like switch up the vibe. We wanted to um like we took inspo from Red Handed because we love them and we thought, you know, we're going a bit more scripted. We're gonna narrate a story. Obviously, we'll 
have a bit of tea like in between but yeah let's jump in I'm ready Eileen Carol Warnos was born on the 29th of February 1959 in Rochester Michigan she'll grow up to be one of the most famous serial killers in American history largely notable because unlike the majority of serial killers Eileen is a woman so in this episode, we're going to take a look at a life, a crime, the aftermath of a trial, and later her execution. So spoiler alert, she did get the death penalty. So looking at her background, it's safe to say that Eileen had a pretty troubled childhood. Her mother, Diane Warnos, met and married Eileen's father, an 18-year-old Leo Pittman, when she was only 14. And the couple had a short-lived marriage, during which Eileen, Eileen's older brother Keith was born, and when Diane was 16, she would give birth to Eileen. She had filed for divorce two months earlier. Eileen would grow up never having known her father, living with her mother until the age of four. In 1960, when Warnos was only four years old, Diane actually abandoned her children, leaving them with her maternal grandparents, Laurie and Britta Warnos. Both of them were alcoholics, and they legally adopted Keith and Eileen on the 18th of March, 1960. Now, Ellie actually found a piece of information that said that one of Eileen's first memories she ever had was of her mother telling her that she should have aborted her and that yeah. actually came yeah do you want to tell us where you got that from Ellie? I just I just realized that's why you paused as well and I was just like yeah <laughs> I'm, I'm enjoying the story already um so uh I, I've we both have done like independent research on this um Adam read a book I listened to a podcast series um, where the I'll link I'll link it in the description because it's it's really good and they put a lot of work into it. Um, but they spoke to actual like witnesses, friends of Eileen. They read her letters. Uh, p- people you know investigators who are part of the case, and uh, a psychiatrist who was involved in Eileen's case who you know analysed her quite thoroughly. Uh, and the psychiatrist said like one what Eileen told me was one of the first memories she has of her mum is um. Her mum saying that she should have aborted her. And this is, she's four. So this is already. It's pretty rough going for little Eileen. Yeah. Yeah. And interestingly, crime ran in the family. So Eileen's father, remember, she never actually knew her father. He was out of the picture by the time she was born. Um, He would go on to have a criminal history of his own. So in 1967, so Eileen would have been. 12 about yeah about 12 at this time he was sentenced to life imprisonment for trigger warning here kidnapping and raping a seven-year-old girl um and he was later diagnosed with schizophrenia and he committed suicide by hanging in prison on the 30th of january 1969 so you might think okay so she's away from these parents who were children basically and obviously her dad was not the best um, and a mother abandoned her. You think, okay, at least she's with her grandparents, maybe they're better. Sadly, that's not the case. Not the case. So, life with Laurie and Britta Warnos was not the ide- idealistic childhood that she and her brother may have hoped for. By the age of 11, she began engaging in sexual activities in school in exchange for cigarettes, drugs, and food. Um, she'd also engaged in sexual activities with her brother, it's been reported. And Mm-hmm. Eileen said herself that her alcoholic grandfather had sexually assaulted and beaten her when she was a child. Before beating her, he would also stop um, and force her to strip out of her clothes. And in 1970, she became pregnant after being raped by a family friend. It's also worth noting that 
she was actually considered to be quite gifted at school, um, particularly being quite creative. But she was heavily bullied, and it's only increased as she became sexually active. So, as we can kind of see already, she's not had the best childhood. Um, parents have abandoned her, grandparents are abusing her, and also a little bit of incest thrown in there, which, you know, doesn't really make for the best of childhoods. I mean, she's had a deeply, deeply troubled upbringing, like, you know, one of the worst you could possibly imagine. I mean, everybody around her has either abandoned her or harmed her, especially the men yeah. in her life. So it's women have abandoned her, men have abused her, and she's only 14 at this point. So, yeah, not a great start. No, absolutely not. So if you remember, she fell pregnant at the age of 14 after being raped by a family friend. Warnos gave birth to a boy at a home for unwed mothers on the 23rd of March, 1971. Uh, and the child was placed up for adoption immediately. A few months after her son was born, she dropped out of school. At around the same time, her grandmother died of liver failure. Although, from what I have read, there are people in the Warnos family who suspect that her grandmother was actually murdered by her grandfather. Uh, oh, that's... shit, I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't know that until, like, yesterday. I was like, oh, fuck. Um, that's purely speculative. It's not been proven. But obviously, this is the early 70s, so... I mean, this time, like, Ted Bundy and people were running around doing all kinds of shit. So, really, the the police in America weren't fully doing what they needed to do in terms of investigating things at that time. Mm. The police being shit. Imagine that. Hmm. Wow, I could never. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, shortly after, when she was 15, her grandfather threw her out of the house and she actually began, began, she actually began to live in the woods near her old home and she supported herself through prostitution. Her adult life was as troubled as her childhood and began with several arrests in her late teens and early 20s. In 1974, at the age of 18, she was arrested for driving under the influence, disorderly conduct and firing a gun from a moving vehicle. She faced additional charges for failing to appear in court. Wornos then hitchhiked to Florida in 1976 and quickly married a 69-year-old yacht club president named Louis Gratzfell. However, the marriage was short-lived due to Warnus's confrontational behaviour and assault charges, including hitting Fell with his own cane. She returned to Michigan and was arrested in 1976 for assault and disturbing the peace. Shortly after, her brother died of cancer in July 1976. Warnus received a life insurance payout of £10,000, I mean dollars, she and Fell annulled their marriage on July 21st, 1976, after only nine weeks. Now, um, in the podcast I listened to, her friend Dawn, who has been her friend for her the entirety of her life, they were childhood friends, and right up until today, Dawn only ever speaks of her very fondly. Um, and she said that there was love that she did believe, even though there was a drastic age difference and I don't know if this is a bit a la Freud or not <laughs> or if it's just uh, a coincidence or some sort of survival method but Dawn genuine, genuinely believed that there was love there but um, that she was really um, just not accepted in his social circle now this is a, a yacht club president so you can imagine yeah, he's, he was a very wealthy man. He was a wealthy man and he was circulating in very sort of like 
upper class um, circles and she was just not accepted. And I think that made things a lot hard for her because even when she had that moment of, I made it, I'm, I've made it out, I'm, I'm safe. She wasn't, um, I don't think she's, even when she had a security, she didn't have the sense of security that she needed. Um, yeah. Yeah, it would seem as well that um, what I have since learned about Fel, the man that she married, mm-hmm. is she was actually his fourth wife. And he had right. a track record of marrying like the next prettiest little thing and right. expected to be very complicit and very obedient. And as we will come to learn, and as I think we already know, Eileen has never really had... Um, well, she had no real upbringing. She wasn't, she didn't have an upbringing. She had, her early life was still a trauma and she didn't really understand um, what to being disciplined or what it meant to be um, complicit was. I think that kind mm. of explains a lot of her later actions. Mm. And so that dynamic was kind of screwed from the start, really. It, it really was. Um, and I think the way Dawn described it was that, because I think Dawn met him. I mean, they were literally like best friends their whole life. Um and he, she said that he, it seemed like to her, he was very much like trying to be her like savior, like, oh, this poor like little yeah. sex worker, I'm going to like um, protect her and, you know, um, change and her life type of thing, like a charity act rather than like an actual. Well, you know, you know that because we haven't formally introduced, oh, we did actually, we mentioned that she'd supported self prostitution. I will tell you, so I've said this on the podcast before, I used to be a sex worker um for five years um I worked in sex work and that's is such a common thing that men particularly wealthier clients which most of them are because you know most people don't really have disposable income to spend on sex um they do have a whole sort of like obviously it hadn't come out at this time but like whole like pretty woman complex about them where mm. they think that they're going to be like you they're going to be a Richard Gear and like they want to save you and that and it's quite icky to be honest, yes. um, but it's very, very, very common in my experience. Yeah. So, Warnos used some of the money to pay for a fine for drunk driving, but quickly spent the rest on luxuries over the course of two weeks. In 1978, at the age of 22, Warnos attempted suicide by shooting herself in the stomach. She had actually attempted suicide multiple times between the ages of 14 and 22, with some biographers counting up to six attempts over the course of eight years. In 1981, she was arrested for armed robbery and sentenced to prison. And in 1984, she was arrested for forging checks. So it's important, I think, to note that at this time, she had a raging temper um, and she had been screwed over so many times that men already were like starting to trigger that temper. Um, because according to Dawn, her bestie, um, she was actually quite nice. Like she was really a, quite a polite person to most people. Um, well, to everyone, she was actually really nice. Um, but it would be a man who would trigger something and then just unleash like an, a totally different person. That's so relatable. <laughs> I mean, Loki. <laughs> Honestly, you had a nice day that it just takes one fucking man to ruin it. Yeah. <laughs> No, actually, that's so true. So to be honest, she's just normal at the moment, just getting in a bit of like legal trouble. Yeah. We have to remember as well, like a lot of the legal struggles and, you know, getting in, arrested, a lot of it is, uh, you know, she's 
stealing things she's I think she's going through this sort of one she doesn't care whether she lives or dies already I mean she's trying to unalive herself several times and two she's like yeah uh you know there's armed robbery going on like she's there there's an I think there's an element of survival and an element of like I just don't give a fuck like she just yeah there's definitely really a much sort to of live for. there's a recklessness that's going on for sure yeah so Warnos had several more encounters with the law, including car theft, resisting arrest, and being a suspect in a revolver theft. In did you even turn that to rhyme? <laughs> I did not intend that to rhyme. <laughs> I didn't write you know this. <laughs> the spirit of Nicki Minaj was running through my veins. <laughs> so in 1986, she met Tyria Moore, and they became a couple. Warnos supported them with her earnings as a prostitute. And they were detained in 1987 for an assault and battery incident. Um, oh, and also one thing that we haven't mentioned, but I feel like it is worth mentioning. Because, yeah, you know, this there's is a tea. Theme, there's a theme of women abandoning her her whole life. Um, and before she got in a relationship with Tyria and after um, her marriage ended, she did get in another relationship with a woman um, that she was like, totally in love with um they like started and... a business i read like a little cleaning business well actually they didn't but the girlfriend wanted to and um eileen gave her 4k um to to do it which completely like sapped wiped her, her, her out money. yeah yeah wiped her out um and then the girlfriend just ran off with it um and even there's a there's an interview of eileen talking about it and she was like i didn't even care like i, I really I, I loved her so i just i was more upset that she abandoned me rather than taking the money which i think is really sad you know mm. um so in 1988 warnos accused a bus driver of assaulting her and moore served as a witness warnos claimed to have deep feelings of love for moore even after her arrest and conviction later at her murder trial warnos stated it was love beyond imaginable. Earthly words cannot describe how I felt about Tyria. Yeah, I mean, this theme of women abandoning her and already, I mean, one thing we've not really talked about a lot throughout her adult life is that she was, she claimed, um, and I do believe her, that she was assaulted and raped multiple, 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 multiple times throughout her um you know career as a sex worker um so, i believe it because yeah it, it happens i've i've not to go too deep but like i've been there before you know it does happen yeah. um and that's part of why it's so important that sex work is legally regulated um obviously this is like the 70s and the 80s the conversation about sex work as being human beings is decades away at this point exactly um, but it so you just get a does... lot of seedy men right yeah I mean, it's a real con- a real like common occurrence and deep concern for sex workers at this time yeah and also to keep to add a bit of context as well she's doing this purely out of survival um because she left school at the age of 15 she didn't leave with any qualifications she had no sort of her family didn't come from wealth um, she had no understanding of how to manage money, hence we saw from how fast she spent the 10 grand that she got from her brother's life insurance. Mm-hmm. Um, survival sex work, often it's sex workers that are doing it purely out of survival that experience the worst of clients or Johns because mm-hmm. they oftentimes 
they're going for people that are spending less money who have less um less traceability and accountability and without sounding like judgmental they kind of deal with guys from the wrong side of the tracks a lot i mean i think Mm. all sex workers do but um you know you think about the clientele that she would have had it's people who came from probably quite similar backgrounds to her who are like here's you know here's twenty dollars do this do that um you know and because she was making only a certain amount of money and she was working with men who were quite well as we'll go on to see she claimed were very violent um i do believe that these things do happen a lot of the time unfortunately mm-hmm. yeah and it is i one thing that i didn't i don't think we put enough emphasis on is how badly she was affected by her brother's death as well that was that yeah. was a real real big turning moment for her um so, and uh, you know hence the uh, you know suicide attempts afterwards but she's not she's not in a good place for for, for most of her adult life well most of her life period well, most she's, of her been life. Go- she's been going through it yeah and so where ellie left us off we arrive at the year 1989 taylor swift was born that year <laughs> and the berlin wall fell that year and Eileen just you. <laughs> yeah, Taylor Swift was born, <laughs> the Berlin Wall fell, and Eileen made her first kill. So she murdered several men within a period of about 12 months, and all of the men were motorists between the ages of 40 and 65. So her first kill was a man called Richard Charles Mallory, who was 51. Um, and owned an electronic store in Clearwater, Florida. Um, she murdered him on the 30th of November 1989, and Wano's claimed that Mallory raped, beat, and sodomized her. Um, and then he drove her to an abandoned area for sexual services. What, he was her first victim, and she claimed to have killed him in self-defense, and later it became known that Mallory had previously been convicted for an attempted rape in Maryland, so it does kind of check out. Um, Ellie also found out that he had spent 10 years in a mental institution and had several violent sexual episodes. Um, But this was all found out way too late and the jury never had the benefit of hearing that and it may have, it could have had some impact maybe. I think it might have. I think that's a really major factor. And the psychiatrist at the time who was was the um, source of this information was like, like who, that this could have completely changed. Obviously, you know, she's, charged for several murders but on this particular one um there's a real good chance that she she wouldn't have been guilty for this if they yeah. knew that piece of information which Absolutely. is just baffling to me yeah so um can i can i talk yeah. about the details of of this particular yeah because guy? they are definitely very relevant yeah so um this is something that Eileen had said so this is directly from her mouth she claimed that um you know when he picked her up because it was um they were all motorists right so she's like either in these scenarios she's either hitchhiking or you know looking for work I suppose um she claimed that when he assaulted her he put rubbing alcohol in her and used a pole which is absolutely vile and um her her best friend dawn said it was the worst one for her 
um and she saved her own life like dawn is fully convinced that this really was a self-defense attempt and um you'll you'll sort of notice that this first one is violently different to the rest of them like it it the way she kills yeah. who she kills the, the scenarios around it they're all completely different to the first one um and a psychologist a psychologist said that her entire psychology changed after killing Mallory and um, we really see this like steady progression of hate towards men after this um and <laughs> fight or flight really said fight like she after after this experience she went nah um, and I think this is interesting because she is always described as a serial killer, but she doesn't really fit the usual patterns. No, not at because all. you know, you know, if you're a true crime buff, then you know the sort of patterns that serial killers show. Obviously, like males mostly, um, they start like fucking about with animals, right? They start like killing animals. Yeah, the second like the that. pet goes missing, you think, oh fuck, here we go. Yeah, yeah here we go, <laughs> exactly. Um, and they do exhibit like this pretty much the same. I mean, once you hear, hear one serial killer tale, yeah, they all they all sort of merge into one because yeah, the, the they are, are very so similar. similar. But she does not show any of this. Like, this is very much, in my opinion, a trauma reaction, a trauma response. And we have yeah. to remember that she has a family history of schizophrenia. Um, so, yeah. th- you know, this is all... And a long, long, long history of sexual violence. Yeah, and trauma, abandonment. Like, this is all the makings of somebody who's just, like, turned into, like, pure rage, in my opinion. Um but yeah, it's clear that her actions are coming from a place of very intense trauma. And I think there is something to be said here about the difference between a male serial killer and a female serial killer, at least in this instance, because men yeah. will just kill for the, I mean, there are many, there are, you know, multiple reasons, but because either they're psychotic <laughs> um, or they, there's some sort of like thrill or fetish involved in it. Um, whereas this is coming from a place of, hurt and trauma and the abuse she's had from men it's it's a she's gone into like self-preservation mode and just fight mode um out of fight or flight so i think that's that's very telling i think (laughs) the state of like why women might kill compared to men i think as well the the methodology that you know she shot her victims um including mallory and if you think about it a lot of serial killers um that like know are covered on true crime podcasts they have almost a ritual around how they kill a lot of them are very ritualistic do it in very specific ways and you think about it the fact that she shot her victims it does you know it's a very instantaneous effect it's not Mm -hmm. meditate it doesn't i mean for all we know it may have been premeditated we can't truly know what was going on in her mind but Mm. um it was very much it would seem like you know a quick reaction this is a way to get this person away from me or you know neutralize a threat and it's like you said fight or flight really popped off and said fight in this scenario yeah because after that there was six months between that one and the next one and then after the next one it's just like weeks apart like she's just on she's on a mission after that like she's blinded yeah and that's possibly it could be a bit of a delayed reaction from Mallory of like oh shit I've done this and then she um his body was abandoned and found about two weeks later um several miles from where um he picked her up originally um along with his abandoned vehicle um 
And maybe it was a sort of a delayed reaction. Obviously, we're speculating here. We're not true crime experts. We just, you know, we're just sort of spitballing here. But perhaps because of the shock that, oh, crap, I've actually done this. But also, in a way, maybe she's like, I've kind of taken my power back in a way. I've defended myself. And coming mm-hmm. to terms with what that actually signifies for someone mm-hmm. like her with the history that she has. Um, it does make you wonder if that's why there was such a disparate gap in time of six months. Mm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I'm going to run through the next ones quite quickly. Um, mm-hmm. So the next one is David Andrew Spears, no relation to Britney Spears. Um, <laughs> he was 43 and he was construction worker in Winter Garden. Um, he was on his way to meet his wife for her birthday and an investigator said that he was just picking up Eileen to be helpful. Um, That's what they believed, obviously. There's no there's no yeah. concrete evidence. Yeah. Um, he was shot six times with a .22 pistol. Um, this was in May. He was found um, again about two weeks later at the start of June. Um, so the next victim was Charles Edmund Haskadon. He was 40. He was a part-time rodeo worker. Don't ask. Um, And he was shot on the 31st of May, so literally two weeks. Um, Not even that, even after David Spears. Um, Again, with a a .22 caliber. Um, The body was wrapped in an electric blanket and was badly decomposed when it was found. Um, She was found in possession of his car. And she'd also pawned a gun that owned that had belonged to him. The next one is Peter Abraham Seams, who Ellie had a note of saying he was described as kind, loving, and deeply religious. Sounds a bit problematic. By to his me. family, yeah. Mm. <laughs> no, so the deeply religious bit. Mm. Yeah. He was 65, so he was the oldest victim. Um, he was a retired merchant salesman. Um she shot him in June, so again, very quick succession. Um, they were seen together. Um, Ellie added here, um, a witness saw this and her child said that her kid, you need to read this. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm making quick notes. Um, so basically, um, this is a really, really important one because this is technically the start of what led to her being um caught. So she stole his car um, and she crashed the car um, and with uh, Tyria in it. And there was witnesses to this because apparently it was actually quite a, they, a crash happened there every like couple months. Like it was a really common place to crash. And the family that lived in the house there came out, um, a woman and her daughter. And, and the, the little girl was like, are you OK? Do you need help? Um, and Warnos said to the little girl, no, that's OK, sweetie. Thank you. And she was like the the way the mother described this interaction she said was so sweet and nice and polite and really warm towards this kid this little girl which i think is a really interesting interaction no it um, really is they actually for, cover for this like in a the character film. reference yeah yeah they cover this in the film but if i remember they portrayed it quite differently in the film oh really um, yeah, I mean, I've only seen the film, by the way, Monster, starring Charlize Theron and Christina Ricci, Grace Tyria. Uh, it's it's good. It um, she won the Oscar. I think she deserved it, to be honest. Um, 
I've only seen it once, so I might be misremembering, but I remember that scene distinctly because it's kind of like in the film, like, oh shit, she's just been caught, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember um, they portrayed it differently to that. Right. I think How did they portray, they portray it? I think they portrayed her as being quite aggressive. Really? I think she was freaked out, but to the little girl, she was lovely, apparently. But also, like, if you crashed a car, you are going to be freaked out regardless of who you are. Yeah, I mean, she was literally fleeing her latest, like, yeah. murder. <laughs> but, um, you know, that's just that's just the detail. That's just a minor detail. But anyway, yeah, she left when she exited the car. That's when she put her uh, bloody palm print, and it was bloody because of the crash, not because of the, yeah. the murder, on the interior door handle. So that was and they didn't ha- they didn't have a uh, the police didn't have a log of uh you know fingerprints and handprints back then but they yeah. did that's something they did keep for later um which helped identify her yeah so the next one was Troy Eugene Burgess age 50 a sausage still salesman from Ocala Florida um he was reported missing on the 31st of July of 1990 um and his body was found in a wooded area in August um, he had been shot twice. The penultimate victim was Charles Richard Dick Humphreys, aged 56. He's a retired US Air Force major, former state child abuse investigator, former chief of police. Um, he was murdered on the 11th of September 1990. Um, his body was discovered on the 12th of September. And um, he was fully clothed and had been shot seven times in the head and torso. Um some evidence suggests that he was trying to defend himself, but this is also what probably kind of really got a fucked in the end because they obviously, the police, if you take one of their own, they're not going to fuck around with you. Yeah, in the podcast, she she was talking to one of the lead investigators and she asked a very frank question. She was like, do you think that because this particular case was one of your own that you treated it more seriously? And he said, I'd like to say no, but yes, we absolutely did. We were, we were, ooh. Sorry about that. We were working at like uh, five a.m., knocking on people's doors in the middle of the night to to like they were they were committed to this case more than any of the others. But also, um, a lot of these cases were being done by different forces because they were like all in different counties. Yeah, that's something that I didn't yeah. mention as much. But we got Marion County. Um, we've got Jupiter, Florida, Orange Springs, Florida, Pasco, Winter Garden, Florida. American places have such like quaint names sometimes. They really do. Um, and the last one was Walter Gino Antonio, 62, a trucker, security guard, and a reserve police officer. So again, another one in the police. Um, he was found, his body was found on the 19th of November 1990. Um, and his car was found five days later. He was shot four times. Um, and there's Eileen claimed that he hit her on the head with a heavy duty flashlight. Yes, but... that was a little extra um thing that um Eileen had said. Um that yeah, there was a heavy duty fa- flashlight under the seat and that he he successfully whacked her with it and she'd passed out in the car. But there was I don't think they really found evidence to back that up, but that's what she said. Um, right. And I think following, you know how we were talking about how different those murders were compared to Richard Mallory. Yeah. Um, is that one one thing that they pointed out on the podcast was that with each of the murders, the murders get a little more aggressive. There's it goes from like two 
um bullets yeah. to four to four to nine to eleven it's like she's getting more furious with each one and um the psychiatrist also said like a lot of these men a lot of these men they they i do believe that they were innocent like and you know their loved ones were were so you know baffled that they would they would you know pick up a sex worker for sex and that they you know a lot of them believe they were just doing you know picking like, up a hitchhiker yeah. um and it does make me think and and same with the psychiatrist that um she was being triggered like a, a man you don't know like what's going on on in her head and how like you know messed up she is from the first yeah. one like all they have to do is maybe put their hand somewhere that they shouldn't as in like in the car or yeah. say the wrong word and she would she and i truly think that in every one of those instances she thought that she was defending herself yeah you know they, they just never got a chance to really prove that they weren't tr- gonna be trouble yeah there's that's the thing i mean most people's trauma responses obviously isn't to shoot um mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah i mean that's important to say yeah but i i will say that as someone who has ptsd from sexual assault there are times that i've responded um in situations where objectively i was safe um and my trauma response isn't to be violent or aggressive it's quite the opposite but um i'm not going to go into too much detail of that but there are times when you are in a complete head a headspace that you don't even understand where you are what's going on and there are i do agree with you there's a high likelihood that she was in close proximity to men she had a historic distrust and fear of men i think that's what we need to understand this isn't just a hatred mm-hmm. it's also a, a deep a deep yeah. seated fear that's because a good, good point i mean her first relationship with a man was her grandfather really and he beat her and sexually abused her so mm. her very first introduction to men was through sexual assault and violence and that just sets the tone for the rest of her life i think mm. um and I do completely agree with you. I think that whether these men were innocent or not, she perceived them to be dangerous. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They did something that had that triggered her. Um, that's what we know. And we know that from the way she killed, you know, the increase in bullets and yeah. stuff like that, that it was it clearly this blind rage panic that I assume was um, had been triggered by something. Um, not that they did anything wrong, these men. What well, we don't, you know, we don't know the full extent of it because, you know, some yeah. of these bodies, uh, you know, as Adam pointed out, were fully clothed. Some of them were completely naked. So we don't really know. And they never really got to the bottom of which ones could have been, you know, just picking up a hitchhiker and which ones could have been asking for sex work and which ones, you know, she claimed that most of them um, tried to rape her. But it, it, you know, we don't know. There's a lot of like blurred lines around that. Yeah. Um. So you know, make make what you will of it. Yeah. So Ellie's gonna dive into what happened after she killed. Hmm. So she was arrested on January 9th, nineteen ninety one, at the Last Resort Biker Bar in Volusia County, Florida. Police located yeah. her accomplice Tyria Moore the next day. Moore agreed to elicit a confession from Warnos in exchange for immunity from prosecution. Warnos confessed to the murders on January 16th, 1991, claiming that the men had tried to rape her and she killed them in self-defense. So there is, 
this thing with Tyria is is really messy and it kind of yeah. breaks my heart a bit because clearly she was there for most of them like she was found with her in many a location fleeing um and um I don't think Tyria did it but she would have been done for you know being an accomplice yeah um and you know the police found her police sought her out and was like listen if you um can get a confession from her then you you've got immunity and she was like fine like Eileen was absolutely head over heels in love with Tyria we know that there's recordings um and Tyria was just very much self-preservation like she, she didn't really care I don't think she was just trying to like save herself um and there is actually the phone call that is available to the public that you can listen to um and I would say you know listen at your discretion because it's quite a heartbreaking one where um yeah, it's a hard listen yeah, Tyria is sobbing on the phone to Eileen saying that the cops are coming after her um, for something that Eileen did. Um, and Eileen said that she would hand herself in before um, that could happen. And she did. It worked. Um, that And that was a recorded phone call. And the next day, she she came in to confess, saying that they're all self-defense, as we just said. So Wallace went to trial for the murder of Richard Charles Mallory on January 14th, 1992. She was convicted of his murder with help from Moore's testimony and sentenced to death. She received five more death sentences for the other murders she committed. Wallace's defence tried to introduce evidence that Mallory had a criminal record and had previously been convicted for attempted rape but the judge refused to allow the records to be admitted as evidence, which sort of goes back to what we were saying about the jury never got to hear, like, the full details, yeah. which is just really fucked up, like, let's be honest. It is. When when some jur- jurors decide what happens to somebody's life and they need all of the evidence, like, yeah. that goes without saying. Um, she also said, it's really interesting, that when Eileen confessed, she said that she she admitted that she was just not mentally sound. She said she was having hallucinations and stuff, like, you know, and a lot of people uh, um, theorised that the schizophrenia might have been kicking in then. There's a there's a good chance yeah. that because her father had it and this is the age where it starts to show that that's what was happening. Um, and that's there's a good chance um, that that's what, you know, really fueled a lot of the murders along with the, the you know the fear and the triggers that were being set off yeah um, it was it kind of seems like it was a perfect storm of shit to like impact her actions it's like we got schizophrenia like possibly going on a lot of ptsd i also don't think we should overlook that um she probably felt a lot of pressure because she was the main breadwinner of her household with tyria as yeah, well yeah that's so um, true so there was pressure being a provider. Um, she also was a vagrant. She didn't have many. Um, she didn't have permanent dwellings for long. She often mm-hmm. had to move around from place to place to place. Mm-hmm. Um, and all those things do compound. And another super duper important, like this is massively overlooked. And this is a psychiatrist that was on the podcast that was in charge of like analyzing her for this case. The psychiatrist deemed her not sane enough to continue with the trial but it continued anyway that's huge like that's that's major that you know it's you know how hard it is to be able to like plead guilty um i mean plead innocent due to insanity that's really hard but the psychiatrist was like yeah like 
allowed <laughs> she's not sane she's not sane enough to do this and they were like nah which that's crazy that is so crazy and also um you know we i mentioned moore's testimony really important um to mention that eileen said that um her testimony was full of lies and she felt deeply betrayed by it um and after hearing moore's testimony she simply just asked to go back to her cell asked the judge to go back to her cell which is yeah. so so sad on march 31st 1992 warnus pleaded no contest to the murders of three other men stating that mallory had violently raped her but the others did not she was given three more death sentences for these murders in June 1992, she pleaded guilty to the murder of another man and received her fifth death sentence. In February 1993, Warnus pleaded guilty to the murder of another man and received her sixth death sentence. Um, I think maybe it is worth noting as well that she was kind of up for it at this point. Like she was like, after the first death sentence, she was she just wanted it all to end. She asked her, she actually asked her um, solicitor or her attorney can you just make me like can we just get to the death as quick as possible like can you just I don't want you to try and like get me off here just I just want to speed this along as quick as possible like she was very much like yeah. I I want to die um so Warnus gave inconsistent stories about the killings initially claiming self-defense but later admitting that she killed the men for robbery and leaving no witnesses in interviews towards towards the end of her life she expressed a desire to die and accused prison personnel of mistreatment. Warnus was executed by lethal injection on October 9th, 2002. After her death, her body was cremated and her ashes were scattered in her native Michigan. In her final statement, she said she was sailing with the rock and would be back with Jesus. Warnus is the second woman to be executed in Florida, Florida and the 10th in the United States since the reinstatement of capital punishment in 1976 which don't even get me fucking started on that. Yeah, because I don't know about you guys, but capital punishment doesn't really do it for me. It's just so, like, ancient. It's like, like, I know, is... like, are we in the Middle Ages? Is this Game of Lit Thrones? Literally. Like, what the fuck were they thinking? Reinstate? I mean, this oh, is Florida, Texas. I don't care. Well, I mean, they've just fucking scrapped abortion, so let's be real exactly that's what i mean like i'm done with it as you may have sensed from my tone <laughs> yes. i'm not i am i cannot deal with, with um certain states in the u.s in 2002 warnos began accusing prison matrons of tainting her food with dirt saliva and urine gross yeah, she said gross. she had overheard conversations among prison personnel Try, quotes trying to get me so pushed over the brink by them i'd wind up committing suicide before the execution and quotes wishing to rape me before execution she also complained of strip searches tight handcuffing door kicking frequent window checks low water pressure mildew on her mattress and catcalling in distaste and pure hatred towards me sorry those were quotes warner threatened to boycott showers and food food trays when certain officers were on duty quotes in the meantime my stomach's growling away and i'm talking showers through the sink of my cell and i'm taking showers through the sink of my cell her attorney stated that, quote, Mrs. Warnus really just wanted to have a prop have proper treatment, humane treatment, until the day she was executed. He added, she believes what she's written. In the weeks before her execution, Warnus gave a series of interviews to documentarian Nick Broomfield and talked about being taken away to meet God and Jesus and the angels and whatever is beyond 
the beyond. In her final interview, she once again charged that her mind was tortured at BCI and her head crushed by sonic pressure. Food poisonings and other abuses worsened, she said, each time she complained with the goal of making her appear insane or to drive her insane. She also turned on her interview, quote, you sabotage my ass, society and the cops and the system. A raped woman got executed and was used for books and movies and shit. Her final on-camera words were, thanks a lot, society, for railroading my ass. Warner's execution by lethal injection took place on October 9th, 2002. She declined her last meal, which could have been anything under $20, and opted for a cup of coffee instead. Her last words were, Yes, I would like to say I'm sailing with the rock and I'll be back, like Independence Day with Jesus, June 6th, like the movie. Big mothership and all. I'll be back. I'll be back. She died at 9.47am EDT. After her death, Warnos's body was cremated. Warnos's ashes were scattered beneath a tree in her native Michigan by Warnos's childhood friend, Dawn Botkins. Nick Broomfield, who made a documentary about Warnos and spoke with her before her death, later speculated on Warnos's state of mind and motives. I think this anger developed inside of her. And I think she was work I think she was working as a prostitute. I think she had a lot of awful encounters on the roads, and I think this anger just spilled out from inside her and finally exploded into incredible violence. That was her way of surviving. I think Eileen really believed that she had been killed in self-defense. I think someone who's deeply psychotic can really tell the difference between something that is life-threatening and something that is a minor disagreement, that you could say something that she didn't agree with. She would get into a screaming black temper about it. And I think that's what had caused those things to happen. And at the same time, when she wasn't in those extreme moods, there was an incredible humanity to her. I think that from her testimony, we we obviously we don't know the full validity of what she said and she reported because at the time of her death, she'd been incarcerated for quite some time, about 10 years. And she'd been betrayed by everyone that she'd ever known, really. And... Mm-hmm. Obviously, as we said earlier, there's a history of schizophrenia in the family. She definitely would have had PTSD even if it wasn't formally diagnosed. And I think being in an environment like death row, those things are going to be exacerbated for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's a really, really sad story. I'm, I mean, I just feel like it's a failure, um, failure of the system, um, and a failure on on women and a failure on children. You know, this, yeah, the life that she led as a as a child should have never happened and I think and I think many people think including the psychiatrist on the podcast a different one the the criminal psychologist who was like just interviewed for her thoughts on it um said if she wasn't raised the way she was if the things didn't happen to her in her just in her childhood none of these men probably would have lost their lives like this just wouldn't have happened so it's a huge failure on the part of society um yeah and so, yeah, I mean, she had a point which said society did railroad her ass. Like, yeah, I mean, that's a good quote to leave off on. I'm not gonna lie. Yeah, I mean, um, I do have some quotes from her, um, that I think if we read through them and discuss them, they they give us some perspective and just show also in a way how different her 
outlook on her own crimes and her own history was from time to time. And because all these quotes were kind of taken in quick succession of each other. Um, mm-hmm. And some of them are wildly different. So the first one that I have is actually in the book that I was reading. I just need to find it. Um, where is it? Also, I wouldn't recommend this book. Didn't really care how it's written. But this is actually a quote directly from Eileen. I know they must think I'm a stupid bitch. But what they must realise is that no matter how much they love the people that died, no, no matter how much they loved them, they were bad people because they were going to hurt me. This person was either going to physically beat me up, rape me, or kill me. I just turned around and did my fair play before I got hurt. Hmm. I think we, I think it's basically confirmed that that's definitely the case for Mallory. I think yeah, that, I mean, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Um, the others, I don't think so, but I do think that she believes that she was in danger. I, I, I yeah. do think that, that's my opinion. That's definitely not <laughs> not like uh you know it I think a lot of um the public were actually quite torn. Um, but mostly in her like local vicinity, she was deemed as like the first ever like female serial killer and like a horrible human being, which I think is harsh. Yeah, I mean I I mean the literally the book is called Monster and the film about her is called Monster. And I think that's a bit of an extreme way to live. I mean, she did deplorable things. She killed. Obviously, you can't you know, deny that that's wrong. I think that it goes back to the fact that in society, women are expected to never be assertive. of, And obviously, this isn't assertion. This is point blank aggression. But women are called a bitch or bossy if they speak their mind. And so the thought that a woman could do something that's considered to be so masculine as kill Mm. and do so in a way that was no it was multiple murders and at times there were quotes from them from her even where she doesn't show remorse because there are ones where she does but a lot of the time she's very point blank no I don't really regret what I do what I did um I mean one of the quotes here is I'd kill again I hate crawling through the system um yeah that's I, I have I, that, hate crawling through my system even yeah that that's um that one was a really poignant one she she literally says there's no point keeping me alive this is during yeah. the trials when they're giving her the death sentences she's like i don't care there's no point keeping me alive because i'm gonna kill again i hate crawling through my system like that's says so much um no, and also really i do does. think that's something to consider about um the question that i think i'm gonna ask at the end like when when we when we leave off um, and an- another quote that I found was, um, which really links to what you were saying about how yeah. um, she's deemed a monster um, and the way women are viewed. Because honestly, let's be honest, if it was the exact same like sort of thing, but it was a man, he'd be one of the like weaker. Would literally be a crack in the in the pavement. Yeah, we wouldn't be having this conversation. There wouldn't be a movie. There wouldn't because there there are so much worse like serial killers who like skin people alive, and cannibals and shit. Like this wouldn't even this would be a drop in the ocean. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um. But she says, women aren't supposed to pose such power and authority over an assailant. We're supposed to be abused, used, and raped. Actually, I should. I think I should be given a medal for it. I help society and other girls. Do I hate men? Not really, just ones that think like their brains are in their ass and penis. Interesting. She's kind of, she's got a point. She, <laughs> but that's the thing, when you read her quotes, I'm like, 
like my god does have a point i'm not gonna lie like a lot of these are and and i'll come back to it again she has been failed like what i don't think we should be calling her a monster like she's been failed and what she's done is inexcusable yes but she has been fa- the reason for it is our failings as a society towards kids towards women towards absolutely like, it's and bad. i will say as well um so talking about how she did perceive she was actually in danger i'm not gonna lie literally every single time i had a client even ones i saw consistently sometimes i clients that i see like sometimes multiple times a month you know very very consistent relationships with these people every single time there was something in the back of my head of like is he gonna kill me i'm actually mm. gonna get murdered this time and That's i think scary it is and I think that any any sex worker from any um, background would tell you the same thing of it is a very, very scary thing to do. And you get used to it and you, you know, you figure out how to navigate that world. And you figure out what the warning signs are and how to alert yourself. But, you know, there's um there's definitely that consistent worry and fear in your head of like, oh, crap is this going to be the one? Yeah. And there's actually a quote from me that I found that I just thought really summed up, um, I think, what most people who've been prostitutes can relate to. And she says, people always look down their nose at hookers, never give you a chance because they think you took the easy way out. When no one would imagine the willpower it took to do what we do, walking the streets night after night, taking a hit and still getting back up. And Honestly, that quote deserves a round of applause. Like that's. I was just about to say, like, I want a slow clap for that because it's it's so true. The amount of people that, when I've told them that yes, I used to be a sex worker, they look at you with such like disdain and think that Mm. you know you take like you said that you take an easy way out when it's like no, it's it is one of the hardest ways to earn money in the world, and it takes a certain kind of person to be able to really roll with the punches and do that and keep getting back up because I'm not going to lie to you Ellie I experienced a lot of violence from clients and I think again pretty much every sex worker has at some point everyone's had a John that did something they weren't supposed to do or you know misbehaved in some kind of way or raised a hand to you or a fist to you or even a blade to you and I don't um, disbelieve her when she said that um you know, it does, it takes a lot of willpower and a lot of strength to get back up and do it again and again and again, because it's, it's not an easy way of life at all. No, no, Christ. It's, it's, um, that's why I think that quote is so powerful. I mean, it's crazy to think how self-aware she actually is throughout all of this. Like with every single thing that happens, there is a quote from her that is very self-aware and very like she says I'm not well I was hallucinating when I yeah. did that I want to die I, I would kill again I I think you know we society has failed us you know people look down their noses at hookers like the way everything she says makes <laughs> so much sense it's so self-aware it's it and it just to me emphasizes that she has been failed and I I feel like some of the blame for these murders doesn't just fall on her yeah, it's that's a bit radical. I don't know. I mean, the, that's the thing that there is something radical about her as a figure. I mean, 
she did i mean and i don't want to sound like we're glorifying um murder because we really really absolutely are, not like, no absolutely like, this is, like, like murder is horrible these men shouldn't a lot of these men shouldn't have died a lot of them um, I'm, I'm sorry i'm i'm don't trust mallory like this the no, man was no that's so a, true a very aggressive sexual assaulter so you know <laughs> i'm not yeah. gonna say the same for him but the rest of them yeah i'd definitely not but there's there's such a brutal honesty about her. I mean, one of her quotes is dead men don't rape. And yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. You're not wrong. You aren't wrong. And um no. another one, if you can't be a good example, at least be a horrible warning. I love that one. I'm sorry, but she comes out with some <laughs> No, she quotes. really Ooh. she does kind of like low-key eat on a lot of these quotes. Like that was an accidental pun. I just said killer quotes. <laughs> oh my fucking god. <laughs> But I mean, yeah. I mean, when yeah. I read that, I thought like, oof, like, half queen. <laughs> I can't. I like with half of these, honestly. I um, think. Yeah. Sorry. Do you have any closing statements? I suppose my closing statement on Eileen is that I think the reason we're having this conversation and the reason that anyone's having a conversation about Eileen, as we said, is. And as we said at the very beginning, the fact that she is a serial killer, because she is a serial killer, she killed multiple people. Yeah, of um, course. No scooting around that one. You know, yeah, you can't really avoid that, to be honest, Hans. Um, the only reason we're having a conversation about her is because she was a woman. Yes. And she booked a trend that women are expected to, well, like she said, they're supposed to be used, abused, and raped. And she turned around and in her own way and in a lot of a lot of these scenarios a lot of these cases in a way that reeks of mental disalignment and even schizophrenia and a panic response she had a twisted form of agency and i think that in a lot of ways she is a cautionary tale like she said if you can't be a good example be a horrible warning um, because she's a horrible warning of what happens when the right person is put in the wrong situation and lives a life where they are failed by the people around them, by the state, by everyone that they've ever known. Because mm-hmm. that's the story of Eileen Monos. She was a woman who was beaten, downtrodden, abused, abandoned, broken more times than you can count. And like she said, she had the willpower to get back up and keep walking. And yeah, that's crazy. Walk- and yeah, but the thing is, ultimately, because she was so deeply failed by everyone around her, all of the systems in place that should have been there to protect someone like her, because she was so deeply failed by everyone and everything, she walked into a path of violence and murder. Mm. And for that, we need society... to look at ourselves as a society. Yeah, exactly. Society really shaped a murderer, like it's in the clearest yeah. possible way. She is a product of misogyny. Her, her yeah. crime oh god yeah and she knew it she knew yeah. it as well so i think my question to all of you is what do you think about eileen and do you think that she deserved the punishment that she got and if not why not and what do you think should have happened we would love to hear what you have to say so please do let us know like send us a message dm um, and also, did you enjoy this? Like, do you like a little true crime episode? Because yeah, I would really be down to do it again. And um, also, a little round of applause for Adam's script because it was very, very, Thank very, you very much. We'll discuss it. <laughs> 
And yeah, I mean, that's it, guys. So if you want to find us and get in touch or just find us and stalk us, <laughs> uh, you can find us at The New Feminist Magazine on Instagram and at TNF Magazine on all other socials. Give us a follow. Please do. And uh, www.thenewfeminist.co.uk is our website. That's it. Thank you. Don't shoot people. Bye-bye.